We're going to read together from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is not a chapter that directly addresses the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, so you may wonder why we're reading this. But the answer is primarily found in verse 16. Well, first of all, the Spirit, though not mentioned directly, is still a topic in the background. But verse 16 speaks of the Scripture that is given by inspiration of God. And that's God-breathed, literally, breathed out by God. So we read this passage in light of the doctrine that we will be addressing this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, which... If you remember the book of Galatians, those are the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 11, Persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Thus far we read in Scripture this morning. In light of that Scripture reading, let's consider Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We move on to the third part in our exposition of the Apostles' Creed. We have seen what the Creed says about God the Father and God the Son now. What do we confess concerning God, the Holy Spirit? Question 53. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, that He is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that He has also given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all His benefits, that He may comfort me and abide with me forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a certain notion that sometimes arises in the church. It is a notion that in the second century gave birth to a movement known as Montanism. Montanism named after its founder, Montanus. Montanus was a teacher who had a group of followers, and Montanus and his followers came to believe that too many in the church were overly intellectual in their faith. They could talk the talk, in other words, but they could not walk the walk. So Montanus evaluated the church of his day, and Montanus and his followers had evidence from within the church to support these claims. 
there was a prominent group in the church of that day known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics who emphasized the intellectual side of the faith, really taking that into places that you can't bring it, but they used the intellectual side of the faith to justify an ungodly lifestyle, living in adultery and fornication and drunkenness. Gnosticism was a real problem, and its leaven was leavening the church of that day. But Montanus overreacted to this real problem by wrongly appealing to the Spirit. Montanus and his followers began to claim that they had a special anointing from the Spirit, not true of other Christians. And the evidence that they provided for this special anointing were the ecstatic experiences that they had and the visions and dreams that they claimed to be receiving. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied and claimed to have special revelations directly from the Spirit. And these special revelations gave them special authority. And as they reacted against the Gnostic justification for an ungodly lifestyle, the Montanists turned toward a strictly ascetic lifestyle, a very austere version of the Christian life. Montanism represents a serious mistake in the church, however, and a lingering temptation for the Christian church. This is a mistake that pits spiritual feelings and religious experience over against right doctrine and a right intellectual grasp of the faith. It's a mistake that so reacts against dead orthodoxy and an overly intellectual faith that orthodoxy becomes not so important. More important are the feelings and the life. This was the temptation into which Montanus and his followers fell. And this is the temptation into which modern Pentecostal Christians fall today. And it's a temptation for us. But this is a mistake. And the effect of this mistake, ironically, is that in the name of the Spirit, it actually undermines the Spirit's work and subverts the Spirit's work. For the work of the Spirit is to turn a man into a man of God. And the Spirit is pleased to do that, not by giving ecstatic experiences, but through the Scriptures. Scriptures that He has breathed out and given to the church in His capacity as the Holy Spirit, that is, the breath of God. So I call our attention this morning to our Lord's Day, and the theme for this sermon is believing in the breath of God. Believing in the breath of God. First, who He is. Second, how He works. And then finally, what it means to believe in Him. The breath of God is the Spirit. And if we're going to identify who the Spirit is, the first thing that we have to say in answer to the question, who is the Spirit, is that He is the Spirit. And Spirit has a very precise meaning in this context. There is a sense in which the triune God is Spirit. The Father is Spirit. The Son is Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Spirit. And that is because the essence of God is such that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Spirit. Which is to say, God is not a created being. He is not a visible being. He is not a being who can be broken down and analyzed as anything in the created world can. God is Spirit. This this is what Jesus says in John 4. And they that worship Him must worship Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in spirit and in truth. And yet, only one of the three persons in the triune God is the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit any more than the Father is the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit any more than the Son is the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit. He is one of those distinct, 
persons in the Godhead who is true and eternal God along with the Father and the Son. There is a distinct person known as the Holy Spirit. So when you think of the Holy Spirit as a person alongside the Father and the Son, you must think, what makes this person unique? What differentiates this person from the other persons in the Godhead? Well, what makes the Father unique is that the Father is unbegotten and is therefore the source of all things visible and invisible. What makes the Son unique is that the Son is eternally begotten out of the Father and is the Word made flesh who was born of the Virgin Mary. But what makes the Spirit unique? We sometimes have a more difficult time with this because the Spirit feels even more mysterious to us than the Father and the Son. We understand that fathers beget sons and that sons are begotten of fathers even if we can't conceive of an eternal relationship of begetting, but the relationship is familiar to us. But how about the Spirit? How does the Spirit fit in? The answer given by the ancient creeds is that the Spirit is the person who proceeds. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, as the Nicene Creed puts it. Now there's an element of origins here where the Spirit proceeds out of the Father who is His source, just as the Son is begotten out of the being of the Father. So the Spirit proceeds out of the being of the Father. He has His source in the Father. But the Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not begotten. He's the Spirit. He proceeds. And His proceeding out of the Father, therefore, is different from the Son's being begotten out of the Father. What does that mean? What has helped me to understand this and what I hope will help you to understand this is to consider what that word Spirit itself means means. Spirit does not merely mean invisible. Children, spirit does not merely mean something that's spooky or something that doesn't have a body and that moves around unseen in the darkness. Spirit has two basic root meanings in the Hebrew which are related and they are wind and breath. Wind and breath. Now you already know that the Spirit is like wind because you know the story of Pentecost and you know that the first sign of the Spirit being poured out was that there was the sound of a rushing mighty wind that filled the house where the 120 disciples were gathered. But the Spirit is also breath. And breath is probably the more basic of these two root meanings, for the wind that we feel in a summer breeze or in a hurricane is like the breath of God. It's God breathing out over His creation so that the Spirit moves upon the face of the waters as Genesis 1 verse 2 describes it. God's breath is so powerful that it's like wind that blows houses away. What is breath? The Spirit is breath. And now we have a little bit better sense of that proceeding. The Spirit proceeds from the Father to the Son as holy breath that is breathed out of His mouth. And then the Spirit proceeds back to the Father from the Son as holy breath that proceeds out of the mouth of the Son. And the movement of the Spirit is always that He's proceeding from the Father to the Son and from the Son to the Father as a holy breath that is breathed in and breathed out and fills the whole person of the Father and the Son and draws the Father and the Son together in cords of love and unites them together in life and fellowship. That's the Spirit. 
He's breath. The breath of God. Now don't become too human in your thinking of all of this. When you breathe in and when you breathe out, the product of your breathing is impersonal. You do not breathe in and breathe out a spiritual person. You breathe in oxygen, which is a physical, impersonal substance that you need to live. And then you breathe out carbon dioxide, which is a substance that becomes poisonous to others if breathed in in too much quantities. But the Spirit is a person. God breathes Him in and breathes Him out, but He breathes Him in and breathes Him out as a living person, not an it, not a substance, a person, a person with a mind, a person with a heart, a person who is an I, that is an individual agent who acts, who speaks, who lives, who moves about according to his own desires and intentions. He's a person along with the Father and along with the Son. One of the problems with Pentecostalism and Montanism and other errors that are supposed to exalt the Spirit is that, in effect, these errors really take away something of the personality and personhood of the Spirit. The Spirit in these eras becomes a force, an impersonal, nebulous force. He becomes the rationale behind these intense, ecstatic, religious experiences or the dreams or the speaking in tongues. He's a power I can tap into in order to achieve this or that end, to perform a miracle perhaps, if I say the right words or open myself up to the right sort of feelings. But that's not the biblical presentation of the Spirit. The Spirit is not a mere force. The Spirit is not nebulous. He's a person. He's a person who cannot be tamed. He's a person who cannot be governed or controlled by men. He's a person who is not at our disposal to be used for this or that agenda that we may have. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah says, or, or being His counselor hath taught Him. That's Isaiah 40, verse 13. He's a person in the Godhead. It is as a person that He proceeds from the Father and proceeds from the Son and fills the Father and the Son and unites them together in the Godhead. And that brings us to the second important consideration about the Spirit's identity, which is that as a person who is the Spirit or the breath of God, He is Himself God. The Holy Spirit is God. You know the Bible means something special when it says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Now that's not to deny that you and I are also sons and daughters of God, but we are sons and daughters of God through adoption, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of God, not because we are of one essence of the Father, but because the Father in grace has elected to incorporate us into His family life. But Jesus was always the Son of God. He is the Son of God who was born out of the very being of God so that He is one essence with His Father. And there was never a time when the Son was not with His Father or the Father was not with His Son. I and my Father are one, Jesus says in John 10, verse 30. And that's the way it is with the Spirit too. The Spirit is the breath of God. The Spirit of God. He comes forth out of the being of God. And this coming forth out of God's being is an eternal coming forth. An eternal procession. There was never a time when the Father was without the Spirit or the Son was without the Spirit. There was never a time when the Spirit was not moving between the Father and the Son as the holy breath of God. That's a constant reality. An eternal reality. The Spirit, as the Lord's Day says, is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. 
And that's evident from the way the Bible talks about the Spirit. The Bible talks about the Spirit as God. Describes Him as God and attributes to Him the works of God. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Spirit in Acts 5, verse 3 and 4, they were lying to God, Peter said. Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And when God breathes out the Holy Scriptures, as verse 16 says in the chapter that we read, the product is the Word of God. God is speaking. The Word of God which is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction because it is of divine origins. The Bible is God's Word exactly because it is given to us through the agency of a divine person. Spirit. That the Spirit is God is very, very important in light of the work that the Spirit does. I mentioned earlier that, that the Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And if you think about that for a moment, that fits with what we've already said about the Spirit this morning. And that fits with the designation of the Spirit as the breath of God. What is the moment of death? It's the moment when you breathe your last breath. Breath and life are closely connected. And we know that somebody is alive because we see their chest moving back and forth, signifying that their lungs are filling, expanding with air, and they're breathing. Remember how the first man became a living soul. First there was just tissue and bones that God formed out of the dust. But then what did He do? He breathed into him, into his nostrils, the breath of life. And then, then, man became a living soul as the breath of God filled him with life. Thy Spirit, O Lord, makes life to abound wherever you see life. That's the Spirit's work. And that's not only true of physical life, but of spiritual life. Salvation, regeneration, resurrection from the dead. This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit who inhabits a man. A man who is in himself dead in sin and trespasses and unbelief. But the Spirit inhabits that man, pervades into the inmost recesses of his being quickens those things that were heretofore dead, breathes into him the breath of life. But if the Spirit is not true God, He cannot do any of this work. Only God has the power to create life. Only God has the power to regenerate life where before there was only spiritual death. Only God can raise a man or a woman from the dead. Only God can save. Salvation is of the Lord. The work of the Spirit is very much bound up in the fact that He is God. And if you don't have a divine Spirit, you don't have resurrection. You don't have regeneration. You don't have life itself. He's the Lord and giver of life. That the Spirit is God also shows us what a serious thing it is to interfere with His work. To resist the Spirit is to resist God. And yes, there is such a thing as resisting the Spirit. That's not the same thing as resistible grace, which is what Arminianism teaches whereby they say that the heart of man by his free will is able to resist the Spirit 
if the Spirit, even if the Spirit desires to enter that person's heart, that's resistible grace. The Bible doesn't teach that. But the Bible does talk about quenching the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5. And it talks about grieving the Spirit in Ephesians 4. And it talks about resisting the Spirit in Acts 7. Stephen, the martyr, standing before the men to whom he was preaching, seeing their opposition to his word, said, why do you resist the Spirit? You're just like your fathers, resisting the Holy Ghost. Or, for another example of that, we can just look at the passage that we read and what the Apostle is describing here in 2 Timothy 3. The Apostle tells us what men will be like in the last times when perilous times shall come. They will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, an appearance of godliness. Maybe they look very godly, very pious, but denying the power thereof. We ought to know by now what the power of godliness is. What is the power of godliness? Who makes a man who was ungodly into a godly man? The Spirit does that. So these men in the last days who have a form of godliness but who deny the power thereof, what are they doing? They're resisting the Spirit and His work. How? By acting like Janus and Jambres. Those Egyptian magicians who withstood Moses and Aaron in the days of the Exodus. Janus and Jambres, by opposing Moses, were not only opposing Moses, but they were opposing God. And so does anyone who hardens their heart against the truth of the God-breathed Scriptures by resisting the truth of the Scriptures, hardening their hearts against the truth of the Scriptures. They resist the Spirit. And by resisting the Spirit, they resist God Himself. And that's a serious thing. Janus and Jambres were destroyed in the downfall of Egypt along with Pharaoh and his host. The wicked... Men of the last days will be destroyed as well for turning away from God, for turning away from His Word, for turning the truth of God into lasciviousness, for having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Spirit is God. And to resist Him is to resist God. But thou, but you, beloved, Continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. Paul counsels Timothy and the Word of God says to us. And that leads us to the second point this morning, which is how the Spirit works. And If you think about breathing again and how breathing functions in our physical lives, that will give us a clue as to how the Spirit works. Breathing is a very important part of your life, isn't it? But you usually don't think about the fact that you're breathing, do you? It's something that goes on in the background almost unconsciously. And in fact, when you do start thinking about your breathing, that can become a problem. I sometimes start to feel short of breath exactly because I'm thinking about my breathing. And because I'm thinking about my breathing, that gets my breathing out of rhythm. And what I need to do is become distracted and start thinking about something else so that I'm not thinking about my breathing anymore and then my breathing will go back into that rhythm that makes sure that I have a regular supply of oxygen into my body. 
breathing functions best when it's something that's happening in the background. And that's exactly how the Spirit works. Now, of course, there are times when you feel like you have to take some deep breaths, don't you? Maybe you control your breathing very carefully because you're out on a jog or you're riding your bike. You're fulfilling some specific purpose and it behooves you in that particular mode to regulate your breathing. Or maybe you're anxious or stressed out and so it behooves you to take a few deep breaths in order to calm your body down. And then there's a specific purpose for, for thinking about it and meditating on that. And there are times in our Christian life when we do need to focus on the Spirit Himself and on His work. We need to inhale deeply, as it were. But in general, the work of the Spirit is done in the background. And that's where the Spirit loves to be. You don't remember when you took your first breath. And the first breath that you took wasn't something that you tried to do. And if you tried to stop breathing, you wouldn't succeed. At best, maybe you can hold your breath for a while until you go purple in the face and pass out. But soon your body will take over and you'll start breathing again. And that's how the Spirit works. He inhabits us apart from our knowledge, apart from our permission. And He gives us life through His direct agency. And He stays there. He remains with us at all times. Even if we try to fight Him with our unbelief or with our sin or with our flesh, even if we try to quench Him or even if we grieve Him, the most we can ever do is deprive ourselves, as it were, with, of, of spiritual oxygen for a while in our folly maybe running away from Him for a bit as Jonah did. But the Spirit will bring us to the end of ourselves eventually. And at last, He will draw us back powerfully to the right way of serious repentance. But He's always there. He's always there. He's there by an act of God. He's there not by my permission, not by my act. God put Him there. He's been given to me, the Lord's Day says, to make me partaker of Christ and all of His benefits by true faith, and to abide with me forever. Now that does not mean this is all automatic. Much of the Spirit's work is work that He simply does. That's true. It's not prompted by us or initiated by us. It's simply Him, the Spirit of the living God, the Lord and Giver of life, working in us, working upon us for our benefit. And in much of that work of the Spirit, we are passive. We don't regenerate ourselves. Just like we don't give birth to ourselves and just like we will not raise ourselves from the dead on the last day. We don't justify ourselves. God has to do that and He does that in our consciousness by His Spirit. We don't sanctify ourselves. Even though sanctification is a work of God that involves us, in the work of God out of which we live, we don't sanctify ourselves. The Spirit sanctifies us. That's all the Spirit's work. But the Spirit is pleased to do much of this work through certain means. He wants us involved. Not as co-regenerators or as co-justifiers or even as co-sanctifiers, but He wants us involved. He does. He wants us to if I may put it this way, inhale Him. To breathe Him in. To delight in Him. Just like you might take a breath of fresh air on a cool morning. Or just like you might take in a few deep breaths in order to calm yourself down. He wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and truth and the goodness of God. And there's power in that. There's progress in the Christian life that takes place as we consciously and purposely and deliberately breathe in the Spirit. We grow strong and healthy and mature as men and women of God as we breathe in the Spirit. But how does that happen? Well, it happens as we take the words that the Spirit inspired and we hear them and we consider them and we meditate on them. 
It happens as our hearts then become inflamed by those concepts and ideas that we hear and meditate upon. And as we see the beauty and the goodness and the glory of God and Jesus Christ, our hearts become inflamed. And there's life in that. There's life in that for this reason, which is that the Scriptures that have been breathed out by the Spirit show us Jesus Christ. And by fixing our attention on those God-breathed Scriptures, we fix our attention on Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you will just happen to come across Christ whenever you open up the passage and read it just by reading the words. It doesn't work like that. You have to search for Him. You have to rightly divide the Word of truth, rightly interpret the Scriptures. But the Scriptures... Give us Jesus Christ. And when that word is rightly divided, and when that word is rightly interpreted and rightly explained, Jesus Christ is set before us in all of His glory and in all of His beauty. The man who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in every jot and every tittle. The Holy Son of God who emptied Himself of His glory to take on the form of a servant. The Messiah, the Lamb of God, who boldly went where no mere man may ever dare to go, down into the darkness of the grave and hell itself to bear the wrath of God for His people. The Scriptures proclaim these things. The Scriptures set these things before us. And there's no other way of knowing about Jesus Christ and His work than through the Scriptures that were breathed out by the Spirit. Continue in these things, the Bible says. Continue in them. Continue in those things that you have learned from the days when you were a child, Timothy, that your mother and your grandmother taught you when you were on their lap as a boy. Continue in the things that you have been assured of. Continue in the things that you have known from the Scriptures, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Who is it that is teaching you when you learn the Scriptures, Timothy? It's the Spirit. It's God. You see how that works? There's a theological term here that I think is helpful, which is called the self-effacing character of the Spirit. It's a mistake to shine the light on the Spirit Himself too much. We have to know who the Spirit is. We have to know what He does. But it's a mistake to shine the light all on the Spirit Because that's not what the Spirit Himself does. The Spirit stays in the background. And what does the Spirit do from His place in the background? He shines the light on Jesus Christ. And He draws us powerfully to Jesus Christ through the words that He inspired and gave to us. And that's how He works. That's how He works to take a fearful, anxious Christian and to calm those fears through the assurance of the Gospel, by pointing out Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, and who has secured a perfect future for all those who put their trust in Him. That's how He works to take a Christian who is beset by sins that he cannot seem to get rid of and to reprove that Christian and to correct that Christian and to sanctify that Christian so that that Christian becomes thoroughly furnished unto all good works and is brought unto maturity in Christ. He works through the Word. He works through the preaching of that Word when that Word is preached as the truth. And I hope now we're, better, we're in a better position to see the error of Montanism and Pentecostalism and similar errors. Like so many other errors, these errors arise from an apparently good motive. There's ungodliness in the church. There's only intellect and no feeling. There's lots of talk about the work of Christ and the work of the Father, but the Spirit is getting short shrift. Something needs to change. But then the cure that's offered becomes just as bad as the disease. And dry intellect is replaced with mystical feeling and experience and ungodliness or antinomianism, 
is replaced with works righteousness or legalism. And the Spirit is talked about and emphasized, but because the Spirit is talked about and emphasized, the things that the Spirit Himself wants to talk about and emphasize are thrown into the, into the background, which is Christ and His finished work. And it's no longer good enough just to be a Christian. Now I have to be a Christian who has the second baptism and who speaks in tongues and who has mystical dreams. And it's no longer good enough just to know that my sins are forgiven and that I'm an heir of eternal life and to let that be the power of a transformed life. But now I have to do all kinds of other things in order to prove that I measure up to these standards that people are making over here that aren't really the standards of the Bible. And in the name of the Spirit, the actual work of the Spirit is subverted and undermined. And instead of men becoming men of God, They become men who possess a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And the Apostle warns about that. This will happen in the church, he says. Perilous times will come. There will be men like this. From such, turn away. Now please don't misunderstand me. This does not mean that everyone who belongs to a Pentecostal church is Janus and Jambres. There are believers in those churches. And they may be saved despite the fact that they do not rightly understand the Spirit or how He works. And that's why it's important for us to be clear about these topics these morning because there are many who do not understand the Spirit and how He works. And we need to see the beauty of the truth of the Spirit, so that we can be clear about that, so that we can be helpful about that. But the reality is this it's not just Pentecostals and Montanists who are tempted by this, Pentecostalism and Charismaticism is one of the biggest movements in the the evangelical church today, in Christianity as a whole. Why are so many Christians attracted by these ideas or some version of these ideas? It's because there's something within human nature that is attracted to this. We want to have those ecstatic feelings and those deep emotions. We want to see the work of God made visible for us through visible signs and special works. We want to be special. We want to be those who have that special work happening to me. And we have a tendency to to despise the ordinary, to despise the simple, to despise the day of small things. And we get impatient with the everyday way in which the Spirit works in the Scriptures. And we get impatient with all the labor and work that it takes to learn doctrine and to continue in the things that we have learned and to hold fast on the traditions and to grow in them and to grow in their application in our daily lives, in our simple, ordinary, everyday Christian lives. In some ways, it would be much easier if I could just have a sign much easier if I could just have the Spirit talk to me directly in a dream. But no, beloved, that's not how it works. And don't be taken in by that error. At best, it's an error that's born out of an overreaction, that's born out of impatience. At worst, it's outright unbelief and subverts the work of the Spirit. Don't be taken in by it. Believe, rather. Believe in the Spirit Himself and trust in His way of working in your life. And that brings us to the final point. What does it mean to believe in the Spirit? Believing in the Spirit means that we will have a very high view of the Bible. Believing in the Spirit will not lead you to speak in tongues or to have dreams and visions. What it will lead you to do is to have your Bible open on your laps as you're hearing a sermon on Sunday morning or Sunday evening. 
Believing in the Spirit will lead you to read your Bible every day yourself. Maybe in the morning, maybe at night, maybe both. Maybe many times in between. Believing in the Spirit will lead you to have your Bible open in the evenings with your family around the table to read the Scriptures to, with, to, with your children and to discuss the things of the Kingdom of Heaven and to explain to them what it means. Which means that you yourself will know what it means because you yourself are studying these things and considering these things and continuing in them. We sometimes treat the reading and study of the Bible as, as a kind of chore. It's, it's a duty that I have to get through every day, like brushing my teeth or eating my vegetables. I have to go to church even though I'd rather be doing something else. I have to read a quick psalm or a couple of verses from Proverbs to absolve my conscience at the beginning of the day. But what's the real problem here when we're thinking that way? Is it the problem of a lack of willpower or a mere lack of enthusiasm? No. The problem is a lack of faith. Now, I don't mean that you're an unbeliever if you don't read your Bible a certain amount of times every day. But I mean that there's unbelief, unbelief in all of us. In every believer, there's also unbelief. There's the flesh, the old man. The way to better our devotional habits is to examine ourselves along these lines. Do I actually believe that this is the Word of God? Do I actually believe that these words have come to me because they were breathed out of the mouth of the Father and the Son and were written down as holy men of old, were moved by the Holy Spirit so that what I have here is actually the Word of God Himself? Do I believe that? Do I actually believe that this Word has the power to give life to those who trust in its message? and who rely upon it every day? Do I actually believe that Christ is to be found here in the Scriptures and nowhere else? If I believe that, if I believe in the Spirit who inspired these words, then my Bible will be more precious to me than anything else in the world. And the preaching of the Bible will be the most important occasion of my whole life, every week. That's what it means to believe in the Spirit, beloved. When you have a high view of the Word of God. Also this, believing in the Spirit means that I will trust what the Scripture says even if it goes against the grain of what I already think or already want. Human nature is subtle, isn't it? And oftentimes we can appear to have a high view of the Bible but what we're actually doing is using the Bible as a prop for my own agenda. We make it say what I want to say. We latch on to certain words and dismiss others as unimportant or irrelevant. And what that actually is, is hijacking the Spirit in order to serve myself. It's not having a high view of the Bible as all. It's having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. If we believe in the Spirit, we will believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction and correction in godliness. All Scripture, including the parts we find difficult, including the parts that run against the grain of what our culture says is acceptable, including the parts that I would rather cast a veil over or pretend that they're not really there because when I read those parts, a finger ends up being pointed at me. If you believe in the Spirit, you will believe what the Spirit says and all of what He says. And you will put more stock in His Word than the Word of any man or expert, including yourself. And lastly this, Believing in the Spirit means I will always be on the lookout for Christ in the Scriptures. Now, it's possible to do this in an artificial way. In seminary, we were warned against pulling Christ out of a text the way a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat. 
what that really is, is imposing a certain idea that I have of Christ on the text instead of finding Christ as he arises out of the text naturally, and that's bad exegesis or bad interpretation. Nevertheless, we believe that Christ is present in all of Scripture, do we not? We believe that the Spirit who inspired the Word of God is the same Spirit who was poured out on Christ, anointing Him as a Messiah. And if we believe that, we will look for Him. We will look for Him. And looking for Him, searching for Him, seeking for Him, we will find Him. For every man who seeketh shall find, and everyone who knocketh shall find an answer. When we search for Christ in the Bible, our priorities line up with the priorities of the Spirit Himself. This is what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to bring us to Christ. So you believe in the Spirit when you look for Christ in the Scriptures. Believe in the Spirit, beloved. Believe in Him and trust that He is the breath of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the Spirit and for His work. We're thankful for the Holy Scriptures that He inspired and breathed out that keep us on the right track, that keep us pointed toward Christ. Keep us, O Father, from the errors that are prevalent in the world around us. Errors that lead men to have a form of godliness that nevertheless denies the power thereof. Grant, O Father, that we would understand the power of true godliness and lean into that and embrace that. Let the Scriptures, as they are preached and as they are read and studied and considered by us, thoroughly furnish us and our children unto all good works, that we may be men and women of God. Do our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.